hello, PAJ readers. This is Bonnie Maranka, the founder and editor of PAJ. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the 100th issue, which will be published in January 2012, entitled Performance New York. We've organized this issue along four central themes, belief, being contemporary, writing and performance, and performance in science. We've also included three dialogues on important topics that reflect the present situation of the downtown arts community in New York City. And there are also six artist portfolios focusing on performance and drawing. The contributions from artists in this issue come from many diverse worlds and art forms, theater, performance art, sound art, music, dance and experimental film. So a broad spectrum of voices have created the content of the issue. Working on this 100th issue over a period of months, extending from the spring and the summer and fall, I was really taken by the honesty and and the uh, sense of conviction that so many of the contributors expressed in their works. They really took these themes seriously. They took the topic very close to heart I think that the responses come from a deep reservoir of personal conviction, and they, in a way, are a measure of the responders' worldliness in the face of global crisis, and and also the difficulty of creating work in the downtown arts community at this particular time of economic instability and cultural uncertainty and simply the sheer difficulty of trying to survive on a daily basis and to do work. So what is really represented in this PAJ is a polyphony of 100 voices taken together from almost 80 artists and curators and critics who responded to the four central themes and then the panel discussions we have on uh, curating and producing and working in theater and performance and dance, and then the artist portfolios. One of the most important subjects that runs through this issue is, of course, the idea of legacy. What is represented in PAJ through the contributors is essentially five generations of artists and curators and presenters and producers and critics representing the downtown arts community. So that's a half century of performance knowledge. And what's important about the issue coming at this time is that the arts community is very much preoccupied with the creation and development and the writing of performance history. So the idea of legacies is an important theme here. The 100th issue means a great deal to me. And It was also important to go back for myself over 99 issues up to this point and try to reflect on where we started PAJ in 1976 when Gautam Das Gupta and I founded the journal and where we are now in the the world of the arts in 2011. So reflecting on the culture that we entered into and what constituted a theater journal at that time and all that we had published and all the artists and critics and scholars who contributed to the journal over the years made me really sit back and think about where we are at this present time in the culture, how we might go forward and think about the creation of arts and the world of imagination for the future against the background of so much technological and economic and cultural transformations that are going on. 
I think it's a very exciting time. Of course, it's fraught with difficulty and a sense of fear and not knowing what the future of societies will be. But it's also exciting to know that we are having a great shift in our thinking in so many different fields and that we are on the verge of great transformation in social, economic, political, and artistic values. I feel that the journal reflects that now is a time for new visions and a very deeply felt sense of purpose. And it's a good time to look back and reflect on three and a half decades of performance in downtown in New York City and to think of all that has been accomplished, the great struggles of the artists to forge new spaces, new publications, new ways of creating work, and just simply reflect now with this issue on what is really important to us to do and how we will move forward in the future. Here is a description of the statements that I have sent to the various contributors to respond to. This one is the statement on belief. In a world where so many values, social, artistic, political, religious, cultural, economic, have been questioned and contested in this era of great transformation on a global scale, what do you still believe in? Numerous books and essays have clustered around the end of or post perspectives after a century of turmoil in every sphere of life on every continent. Previously, sacrosanct beliefs have been turned upside down. Against this background, artists and intellectuals have continued to rethink their relationship to legacies and to the public, to explore new processes and materials, and to find meaning in personal struggle. What are your strongest beliefs in relation to your work in the world? How do these beliefs inform your work? I believe in every breath I take and in nothing else. My breath motivates my movement, my thinking, my emotional state of being. Around me, the world collapses as man-made and natural disasters shake the land and sea. The U.S. spreads its weapons abroad, fighting three wars at the same time. And women continue to wander without full stature in the laws of the lands. My breath speaks to me of this and motivates me to make work addressing the dismal and near simultaneously to keep afloat, to keep walking as my breath soars and I follow through the grasses and trees that continue growing through the warning smog and sludge. I try to retire my breath, to calm it, to use it simply to inspire eating, walking, and sleeping. But the breath in my mind stimulates wonder and amazement at the world's wide artifacts of breath, sculpture, painting, the wear and tear of architecture, the fallows of old fields, scattered stones, remnants from the sea. I try to rest, but am moved to make my surface scratches, combines, and assembled objects 
stride places imagine films. Mine is a situational, locational art, and I am a wandering, wandering woman artist in a land not wholly mine. One day I will stop, rest, and my belief will turn to hope, a hope for the world's continuance, that some other beings might take delight as I and others have taken in breath, in movement, in a life where the institutions of social order will be equally shared by all genders, races, sexes, and sexual preferences. My belief is more a hope than a belief that in our next iteration we dissolve nations without losing unique cultures and recognize this precious globe as ours to nourish and protect so that we all may breathe. Belief in Actions of the Everyday. Intermedia, with its core in sound art, installation, and performance, has transformed culture in my time. In 1962, performing in Wiesbaden, Germany, I became shocked out of painting as my medium of expression, out of necessity, and almost overnight, we had to begin performing the event scores for a starved German public under the banner of Fluxus. Our audience was astonished to find daily events in kitchens and markets, in offices and street wanderings, suddenly looked at by artists. On our second night, the audience was divided into those picketing and shouting us down and those fervently defending what we did on the stage. My Make a Salad, or Shoes of Your Choice, Dick Higgins' Scream, or Ben Patterson's Cello Variations, were of tremendous value to our audience. We had to wrest the German stage from the jaws of grand opera. The newspaper headlines the next day read, the crazies have come to town. After that, the theater was packed each night. Luxus then invaded Canal Street and an underground New York. Overnight, object, event, self, and the world of daily occurrence penetrated art from a real world, a world not born in museums or universities, a world asking what is the value of maintaining aesthetic boundaries anyway? Visual art separated from painting. Sound became ubiquitous in the arts and apart from music. Daily routine was found to be quite mysterious. Unconscious, ordinary actions were investigated for performance possibilities. Luxus established the real life of every man as a source for art action. The small audiences at the Flux House on Canal Street, 
enjoyed the work as something different, representing a new art community quite apart from abstract expressionism. The Saturday evening performances organized by George Machunas and our troupe went over well, sometimes receiving comments in the village voice. We felt warm support from such grand peer figures as John Cage and Marcel Duchamp. With no street lights to guide us, we inevitably made our way to Chinatown and a good cheap meal. Believing in no time, or believing in no time. Belief is a cramp, a paralysis, an atrophy of the mind in certain positions, wrote Ezra Pound in 1921. We could leave the issue of belief right there, intellectually exercised. But unfortunately, cramps come back, especially when we think we're over them and go swimming across the lake. Many of us would like to think that belief is irrational, essentially associated with religion, and therefore rationally curable. But the propensity to believe is hardwired into us, and we quietly use it even more to get across town than to resolve matters at the metaphysical level. Believers in therapy, medicine, physics, etc. can seem to get around belief with the concept science, which changes seasonally, yet retains its reality status. True believers in something or other are everywhere. And no doubt, secretly, we're all true believers in something some of the time. It keeps things looking stable, sort of. Belief is actually a declarative mode, a method of conditioning the future by presuming what is already the case. The degree to which belief conditions the future is, of course, an open question, but it has long been recognized as, as reality configuring. For instance, Frank Lloyd writes, the thing always happens that you really believe in, and the belief in the thing makes it happen. The denial of belief doesn't do much more than make us socially correct in certain contexts. The motivation to deny it is an easily deniable species of respectability, which may include self-respect, intellectual integrity, etc., a preferred picture of oneself. And it comes with a cost. Repressed belief conditions reality unconsciously, out of sight, out of mind and limits one's ability to shape it according to observations of effect in an inwardly developed standard of truth. I propose a new Blakeian proverb of hell. The wise man hunts his belief down like a dog and feeds it kindly until it croaks. An extreme form of declaration informed by a species of negative capability comes via Carlos Castaneda as Don Juan's warrior's belief. Quote, the secret of a warrior is that he believes without believing. He goes into battle and fights as if life and death are at stake in each moment, even though he knows that, quote, the world is only description, unquote. And that's an approach I can believe in without believing. If one's reality is a description, it's variable. Nothing 
is what it seems for very long. Quote, this highway leads to the shadowy tip of reality. Go as far as you like on this road. Its limits are only those of mind itself. Unquote. Rod Serling. This shaky reality status I call parabelief. At a belief? It pushes me far enough out on my toes to keep me awake to what's going on. Inside, outside, same deal. It's a species of conscious liminality, which is the practice of optimal non-denial, acknowledging my deep ambivalence about just about everything, and allowing me to tune into what has its own truth, its own intrinsic attractive force. It's a matter of focus. Belief can be any lens from point-and-shoot to macro to telephoto. In the long-heralded confusion of art and life, we have the opportunity to treat life, indeed mind, as art medium, with the recognition that potentially art, including poetry, music, performance, usurps the belief function, re-educates it, and draws reality back to a primary level of configuration. I see Coleridge's willing suspension of disbelief also as a willing transformation of belief itself. Art has to do more than make us believe or not believe, or, least interesting of all, supply us with new beliefs. To transform the belief function requires realizing directness that alters experience itself. Belief surrenders to perceptions of further reality, a startled response to the unprefigurable. I'm always believing in something at some level, and when I acknowledge this without denial or condemnation, I find myself in a state of waking that may show up as poetry or art or music or... To the degree that I'm actually awake, I allow an impulse to believe or escape belief to embody its complex dynamic in the medium at hand, performatively. It's not about representation, which tends to reify belief as object, but a release through the tension of the liminal state itself. The believing becomes what I call axialized, which means that it's freed into a state of self-configuration, closer to self-organized systems with their own criticalities, like earthquakes, yet guided by a life intelligence, itself unintelligible, that holds open a space of belief in the further possible, a singularity in an instant of time, or no time. Another topic which I sent as a prompt to the contributors is called being contemporary. And here's what this description is. One of the essential concerns of visual art, performance, and critical thought is the idea of the contemporary or the new. We are part of an era that has cast forth great themes and complex ways of organizing society and culture, while also being challenged by many received ideas. How does one take the measure of one's work in the zeitgeist of the times? What makes a performance, a play, a piece of music, or an essay contemporary? What does the search for the contemporary or the innovative mean to the arts and to the public today? 
How is it recognized or understood? Consider your own work or another artist's work in this context. Innovation is not so much an aesthetic value as an aesthetic necessity. Nevertheless, I understand full well the great suspicion with which claims to innovation and originality are now held. Some of this suspicion is a justified response to progressivist ideas in modernism and modernization that value the new over any other aesthetic quality with the concomitant beliefs that the new replaces the old or that the new is better than the old. Too often, claims for innovation seem to mime the marketing and generational imperative for new and improved cultural products. But such claims fail to recognize that aesthetic innovation is not necessarily related to improvement. At its most engaged, it is a means of keeping up with the present, grappling with the contemporary. We have to constantly reinvent our forms and vocabularies so that we don't lose touch with ourselves and the world we live in. The need for change in art is prompted by changes in the social and economic environment. The responses of the past are not always able to engage the present. But such arguments for aesthetic innovation too often fall on deafened ears. The idea that innovation is a luxury for the privileged or those who remove themselves from struggle creates an at best romantic, at worst demagogic nostalgia for the greater authenticity of the experience of the imagined less well-off other, as if only severe forms of oppression can create relevant poetry, as if we are so well-off ourselves with so many things to keep us company. More accurate would be to say that innovation comes as response to the human crisis. Innovation is the mark of rethinking, trying to break out of the obsessive repetition compulsion that we see all around us, whether in an individual or in a family, or politically in the conflict between states or groups. You might say that severe forms of oppression rob a people of its right to poetry, and the crisis for poetry, for the aesthetic, is to create a space for poetry again and again. For that, anything less than invention falters. Sometimes that faltering can be exquisitely beautiful, and sometimes the fall away from faltering can seem crass and crude. But the human need to create anew is no less strong than our desire for lamentation. And even lamentation is not safe from the erosion of our consuming culture. Even lamentation must be reinvented, lest the dead be mocked and the living become ghost walkers, zombies of the tried and no longer true. Art doesn't improve, nor do new modes of art replace existing modes. Indeed, the new may bring back into play previous, even apparently outmoded, styles, forms, contents, and dictions. In insisting on a poetics of invention, invention more than innovation, I am imagining an art that is not progressivist or developmental or even evolutionary, not about replacement, not us-them, 
one that is based more on dissatisfaction with previous inventions than any distinction between new, old, conventional, experimental, mainstream, outsider. What's new can be an oppressive market constraint that stifles an artwork, but it can also be a form of human exchange, as when we say to one another, what's new, meaning what's up or what's happening, what allows for a sense of opening, of a blank page that is not already completely inscribed. Invention is not a matter of choice, not one among many possibilities, but a necessary probe of perception for grappling not only with things as they are, but also with things as they might be. For that task, words such as innovation and invention may be inadequate, perhaps better to invoke the aesthetic force of no, a resistance to the given state of things as not working or not working right or not working anymore. That doubt, that refusal, refusal especially of innovation, may be the mark of any such endeavor so conceived and so dedicated, as blank may be its space. When the phrase, to life, resounds at gatherings of well-wishers and grievers, it is reserved for one particular species, humans. Its exclusivity characterizes anthropocentrism. When, however, ecologists and environmentalists exclaim, to life, the object of their toast includes microbes, plants, animals, and their habitats. Eco-artists join in this expanded celebration by honoring life's sanctity, augmenting its diversity, protesting its neglect, and optimizing its vitality. By replacing anthropocentrism with ecocentrism, they manifest, in my estimation, the current definition of contemporary art. Eco-artists often jeopardize their status as artists because they address issues that non-art professionals typically claim, create works whose functions have no pretensions as fine art, and conduct processes that do not resemble studio art practices. Thus, These artists could either be viewed as defectors from art or as crusaders inaugurating a new art movement. A yet-to-be-answered question is this. Do these innovations carry the significance of commodity abundance in the 1960s that spurred pop art or post-war anxiety in the 1940s that coincided with the rise of abstract expressionism? I argue that eco-art constitutes this era's definition of contemporary art because an ecocentric perspective is increasingly being imprinted upon this era's cultural norm, marking its notions of utility, beauty, ethics, spirituality, productivity, longevity, and so forth. What constitutes a contemporary arts theme? Copious eco-art themes are gleaned from the last 4% of the time that has lapsed since Homo sapiens first stood upright on the earth. This brief period is crammed with an astounding succession of innovations. Agriculture, irrigation, writing, architecture, mathematics, religion, urban planning, metallurgy, trade, money, printing, firearms, 
combustion engines, nuclear power, eBay, space probes, instant messaging, reggae music, life insurance, and yoga spas. Eco-artists are scrutinizing humanity's epic expedition on Earth, weighing each breakthrough against the inadvertent breakdown that may result. What is the material basis of contemporary art? Eco-artists assert the timeliness of their approach by highlighting the fact that art is constructed out of matter, its energies are stored in matter, and its processes are manifested in matter. By emphasizing its physicality, they express concerns regarding the environmental impact associated with material use of all kinds. Humanity's relationships to the non-human world are tested by the resources consumed and the waste generated at each juncture of the art process. Eco-artists interrogate the environmental impacts of the material used in the production of art by asking, is the material recycled, reused, restored, renewed, polluting, depleting, or a keystone? Is the energy used to produce it renewable, polluting, local, or depleting? Are the wastes and leftovers reusable, beneficial, neutral, or toxic? What is its impact on the people who manufacture it and the ecosystems that generate it? What are the aesthetic determinants of contemporary art? Aesthetics is currently undergoing a revision to keep up with art's continuous reinvention of itself. In this regard, eco-art perpetuates the tradition by which discoveries in science influence styles in art by conveying how shapes, colors, textures, compositions, and patterns distribute themselves within ecosystems. Eco-aesthetics investigations are conducted by delving beneath surfaces to discern nature's design efficiencies. Just as artists representing the human form dissected bodies to gain an understanding of anatomical structure and mechanics, artists can now dissect ecosystems to discover how their forms and compositions function. They have discovered twin hallmarks of eco-aesthetics. Interconnection is so core to ecosystem functions that it dominates glossaries of ecological terms. System, network, synergy, community, mutualism, symbiosis, etc. Dynamism acknowledges that anything occupying space also transforms through time. Eco-works of art commonly incorporate this attribute by submitting to the perpetual permutations that account for life on Earth by melting, evaporating, growing, mutating, dying, and so forth. In sum, artists who support the ecocentric alternative urge humans into alignment with directives for attaining sustainability and invent strategies for accomplishing this mission. They may behave like shepherds of the planet's life forms or technical designers of the planet's systems of production, managers of the planet's habitats, healers of the planet's infirmities, emissaries of the planet's wonders, avengers of the planet's spoilers, curators of the planet's resources, and so forth. Here is another theme of the issue, performance and science. It has been said that today's avant-garde is the world of science. The development of perception, speech, and emotion, 
and the experience of space and time have been reconstituted in the vocabularies of the new discoveries. Contemporary approaches to performance and the study of audience perception naturally link to an investigation of the brain and consciousness, as do many technological explorations. Taking neuroscience and physics as a starting point, in what ways does your thinking about artistic process or creation of work now reflect new frontiers in these areas? Is it an important concern in your work? The ongoing developments and breakthroughs in both the arts and the sciences are ineradicably interconnected, and it is for this reason that artists and scientists are cousins, and the advances in one field can be mutually beneficial to another. United, the arts and sciences can contribute to nothing less than the progress of human evolution. The cultural moment of the early 20th century ushered in profound changes in the social fabric and the politics around the world. A seismic paradigmatic shift occurred in the arts and sciences simultaneously. Einstein's theory of relativity, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Picasso and Brock's cubism, Freud's discovery of the unconscious, jazz, Schoenberg's musical experiments, and much more all conspired to help usher in brand new political, economic, and social systems. Now, at the start of this new century, we seem to be undergoing yet another paradigm shift provoked by technological and scientific breakthroughs that are changing our lives, our social and political systems, our relationships, and even our concept of what it means to be human. The theater and performance are uniquely qualified to consider these technological and scientific discoveries to propose the nuts and bolts of how societies might adjust to these breakthroughs and new models, and most importantly, how we might get along with one another. What distinguishes the theater from other art forms is that the subject of the theater is always social systems. How are we getting along? How can we get along better? How can we thrive together in the social arena? Together with City Company, I have devised works in response to the recent breakthroughs in quantum and astral physics, as well as neuroscience. The play based upon the advances in physics is entitled Going, Going, Gone, and the play that investigated neuroscience is Who Do You Think You Are? The study required to realize these plays was thoroughly life-altering for everyone involved in the creation of the productions. In both cases, I wanted to share the insights from the rehearsal process with the audience in the language of the theater. Going, Going, Gone actually required the audience to practice fuzzy logic. Who Do You Think You Are offered the audience a model of a human train wreck avoided by the act of the human brain studying itself. The theater is an art form that traffics in the human body, mind, and emotions, and intellect. It is a place where we can suggest and enact model civilizations and show exemplary human beings. Not that the fictional world of any play is perfect or that the characters involved are flawless. In fact, drama is fraught with stories of unbalanced people in untenable critical situations in search of harmony and equilibrium. But the society formed by actors working together in a highly cooperative and pluralistic fashion can inspire those who are watching by suggesting that such a way of living is possible. The audience is experiencing two societies simultaneously, 
the society of the fiction of the play and the society of artists who are cooperating to present the play. The audience is present in the room with these other human beings, the actors, who are functioning at their highest level of ability, thinking fast, responding moment by moment, allowing emotions to arise and then letting them go. The actor on the stage attempts to capture the best of how a human being might perform the act of living. Actor training is about developing the tools necessary to accomplish this task. In life, we are easily subjugated by our habitual daily physiology and emotion and automatically influenced by the circumstances we find ourselves in. The actor's task is to capture the highest level of human existence and share it with others. The study of both quantum physics and neuroscience transformed the creation of both plays into increasingly non-hierarchic, collaborative, and emergent processes. The subject matter informed the methods of staging, the ways of being on stage, and the creative process itself. My name is Pauline Oliveros, and I'm going to be reading an excerpt from Improvising Composition. How to Listen in the Time Between. Will it ever be possible to measure the nature and number of decisions made by a performer during the course of an improvisation? A sounding happens, the sound continues or is followed or joined by another sound. The trajectory of soundings gradually constitutes a long line of soundings that is perceived as a shape or form that is music. Within that trajectory are myriad decisions that are intuited and joined to refer back to the initial sounding and forward to the ending sound. Each sounding, shorter or longer, has its own shape. A-S-D-R, attack, sustain, decay, release. The parameters of these soundings include articulation, dynamic energy, rhythm, timbre, and frequencies or pitch. All of these components do integrate to form a sounding, and yet there are time delays within the smallest components of a sounding, as well as our own delay in awareness of the sounding. All this happens from the RP, readiness potential, in our own brain, to the action that causes the sounding, to the awareness that the sounding has happened. The awareness of being aware and of the musical implications, past and future, is also part of the space between. There are many studies on hearing. The functional operations of hearing and the mechanism of the ear are measurable. What is not measurable in physical terms is the experience of listening. Listening remains mysterious unless experience is described and understood in consensus. Consensus listening takes place in group improvisations. Consensus comes after the action of making the music together. What remains mysterious is how the myriad decisions and actions that make the music happen during the space between the RP and the performing are coordinated so spontaneously. As I discovered and worked with time delays in the 1960s, I came to regard what I termed my expanded instrument system, EIS, ICE, as a very crude model of how the brain works. Sound is initiated in what we consider to be the present moment. That sound will come back in the future. When it comes back, it is part of the past. Thus, I am improvising in the past, present, and future simultaneously. We are made of time delays from nano or picoseconds to years 
for the whole of our lives. Coordination of trillions of time delays comprises improvisation and makes it possible to improvise composition or to compose improvisation. In the 1960s, when using tape machines for delay processing, the problem of interface was and remains paramount. The electronic music studio was an improvised bunch of machines that were not intended for music making, and especially not for performing. Machine operator interfaces are often very limited. Threading a tape for use on a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine took time. The speed and length of the tape limited performance time. Thus, my tape pieces were often no longer than 30 minutes at 7 IPS. All of my electronic music was performed live in real time in the studio. Because I was listening to and between delayed sounds, I began to have oral experiences resembling after images. I remember taking a break from a live session, walking outside and hearing the delay repetition pattern sounding in the environment. I began to perform with a tape delay system on stage with my accordion in 1967. In 1983, I replaced tape delay with digital delay and began to talk about ICE. Currently, the ICE is programmed to run on my laptop and allows for me to have up to 20 delays per hand. These delays are modified by foot pedal and by algorithms, allowing me to deal with many more voices than possible without technology. My sounds also may be spatialized so that sound in space and space itself is a parameter of music and of my performances. The development and performance with ICE over 40 years has given my body plenty to absorb and think about at the nonverbal level as well as the conscious verbal level. I could not deal with the complexities of the performance system without trusting my body to react appropriately and to drive the improvisation of composition or the composition of improvisation. It is undeniable that my improvisations are informed by a lifetime reservoir of experience. My compositional practice is involved with what I call deep listening. What this means to me is releasing conscious control to my nonverbal body so that my music can be present in the performance gestures that I make. These gestures are shaped by my inner experience interacting with the present feelings arising from the situation of inflow from the environment, other musicians, and audience members. I attend to all of this as a listener. The body, so far inexplicably, knows how to compose and improvise and releases this information through words and physical gestures if one is open to receive the constant vigilance and output of neuronal activity that is not consciously willed. It takes will to be open and to trust the body to deliver and integrate that which is needed in the moment of performance and yet unknown to the verbal mind. Currently, new information is rapidly accumulating from neuroscience research. Perhaps there will be a new understanding of how the body knows so much more than is possible to bring to conscious awareness, at least for now. I consider my task to increase my conscious awareness as much as possible each day of my life and to respect what the body signals to me through sensations and feelings just as much as what my verbal mind tells me through thoughts and intuitions. Synthesis and integration of all these modes of perception empowers my musical being in the world.
here is the description of writing and performance theme. The evolution of text and performance takes many forms in the last half century, as dramatic literature, as fragment, as archive, as intertext, as poetry. While contemporary transformations in theater have moved increasingly away from staging new plays in favor of collage-based work, performance art has embraced language as a narrative mode, and dance has become more theatrical and more text-oriented. What are the issues that influence your thinking about writing and performance? How are they reflected in your process and the kind of work you do? I think that there is something very important that wants to be transmitted to the audience. It's something that the audience already knows deep down but has forgotten about. It's something that is outside of psychology, outside of story, outside of immediately knowing what things mean or add up to or what is inevitably going to happen. Beyond our obligation to know how things are going to wrap up, it is something that is more about not knowing. It lives in the older parts of our brain and is closer to the early religions, the ones that were into using languages that are not easily decipherable, the ones that called cause and effect into question, the ones that saw that everything around us is alive and has thought. This is the kind of thing I am into, and I will tell you what I am really into is bringing those ways into the theater. I think that both writing and performance are the conduits that make the transmission of the thing that is beyond our grasp, but also deep within us and the audience. And so they are both important in that they are necessary, but that is all. They are only the necessary conduits. That is all they are. And there is a sadness and disappointment in the fact that they are even necessary. It is a little bit of a failure and a tragedy of human existence that this sacred, holy, or just important connection does not always maintain our attention automatically. There is a lot of clearing away of a lot of bullshit that more easily grabs our attention. Stuff like stage presence, lust, career advancement, opinion, correctness, skill, craft, ugh, every time I hear that word I want to vomit for some reason, talent, although I love to think about talent, it brings me closer to vaudeville. It's tough. It's not easy. We all want to call attention to ourselves. We all want what we do to be good and amazing. We all want the applause. Don't try to pretend like you don't. I'm talking to myself right now. But I am saying there is something else. And I cannot tell you what it is, because it is beyond our knowing. But we have to make it so our writing and our performance can connect us to it. But at the same time, we must know that it is pre-writing and pre-text and that the performance is what is bringing it into the room. And even so, the performance needs to make sure to gangway because there's something coming through that is a terrifying but thrilling expansion and is both ancestral and a testament to our future. It is the future testament. Set up the plank and gangway. 
With relief, with humiliation, with terror, he understood that he was also an illusion, that someone else was dreaming him. Jorge Luis Borges, The Circular Ruins. Giving voice to the camera or how I learned to speak. In the past 30 years, my work has been heavily involved in the interpenetration of multidimensional content, very often instigated by writing specifically for performance. I see the resulting process as a co-evolution between writing, forms of performance, and technology. In my work, they have developed together and pushed each other forward in a mutual search for meaning. This search brings me closer to the place where thoughts and words originate. In that sense, the performers are generally present and active in this search. The elusive source of origin blurs the distinction of forms that then emerge into the performance. As a director, I find that the performers are willing to go as far as the language and technology will take them. And as a writer, I am willing to go as far as the performers and technology will take the language. Regardless of the creative outcome, this is a true sharing of intentions and possibilities. At its best, we are working as a creative unit, and this engaged transfer of energies creates a physical and intellectual stamina on all sides. My writing has been very influenced by the media technologies that affect all our lives. This has expanded the idea of points of view, physical, verbal, spatial, emotional, and intangible, as integral pieces in the connection between perception and reality. I'm not only writing on a page, I'm writing in space that simultaneously contains all these points of view and their mediators, including the performers. Words are points in space and purely physical notions of boundaries and scale become irrelevant. It is a constant process of trying to stretch the language around new forms with the thought that language is the ultimate survivor and can take all kinds of reformatting. This includes the use of silence, which introduces speaking to the threat of its own mortality. In this open territory, there is a constant search for the correct translation or point of view. In my work, these translations are always shifting in relationship to each other. The audience, performers, and content are part of this shifting. Early on, this interest led me to the use of the camera as a tool. It also became a way of writing. The camera became not only a shared extension of myself and the actors, but also a participant and character and voice in itself. The human struggle to get from the inside to the outside and bring the outside to the inside is an ongoing process of detours, pitfalls, and discoveries in interpretation and perception. To me, writing is a form of thinking, as is drawing. Being born into a mediated world, I found engaging with a variety of voice forms in a space called writing seemed only natural. I'm a lifelong New Yorker. My father did the thing that a lot of my contemporaries did came to New York from a smaller town because New York had art and artists that interested him. At that time, it was the Cedar Tavern, the Kooning, Franz Klein, those people. Those were his pals. I grew up around abstract art and around people who were often ambivalent about mainstream values and mainstream success. My father was also friends with Ornette Coleman, so I also had the great good fortune of growing up with his music and the music of his contemporaries in my head. 
When I consider this bit of personal history, it helps me understand why I still feel like a tourist when doing a straight play, even though I love doing it and greatly admire the art and craft of everyone in my midst. When I saw Squat Theater and the Worcester Group and Miss Universal Happiness Foreman with the Worcester Group and Beckett's The Lost Ones by Mabu Mines, I felt like that was the theatrical expression of the tradition that was in me on an almost genetic level. So it's hard to write about that because it's hard to write about oneself on the cellular level. I'd rather write about something that I can look at from a distance. Great experiences in the so-called straight theater. I saw Ben Gazzara and Colleen Dewhurst in a production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, directed by Edward Albee, on Broadway in 1973. I have nothing brilliant to say about it. I spent a few hours watching this weird, hilarious, deeply in love couple, George and Martha, torture each other and others. I believed every moment in the sense that I never doubted their simulation of, quote, reality, unquote. And no amount of incredibly fun and brilliant form and essays about how straight plays can only confirm what you already know can plant an iota of doubt in my mind that that play, when played the way I saw it that night, is the richest mindfuck imaginable. Speaking of which, I also got to see John Gilgood and Ralph Richardson in Pinter's No Man's Land. What stays with me about that more than 30 years later is the liquid flow of language that has only been rivaled by the Worcester Group, maybe because they, in their own inimitable, radical fashion, are the inheritors of the ensemble tradition, the real thing, the living together artistically for your whole life, as opposed to the hackneyed overuse of the word ensemble, as in, this is a real ensemble piece. But back to Pinter. After my son recently saw The Homecoming on Broadway, he said that was the first non-straight, straight play I ever saw, exactly. At the moment, I feel enriched to be surrounded by writers who fill that non-category described by my son's comment. Sybil Kempson, Young Jean Lee, Rich Maxwell, Tom Bradshaw. The list goes on and on. But would there be any list if not for the mad, perverse, dear, generous, great writer Mac Wellman? Probably, but I still like asking the question as a way to laud Mac's magnificent contribution to his generation by spawning the next generation. Finally, speaking of spawning generations of artists, no one touches Liz LeCompte. She's the best. At this point in my essay, I've lost track of the topic, but I know I am serving up an apt conclusion if I just leave it at that. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information about PAJ or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.